This week on Geek Explained, to celebrate the upcoming release of Ant-Man and the Wasp, Quantumania, we're diving into a time-bending story that celebrates the history of the astonishing Ant-Man. So join me as I put the Geek Explained spotlight on Al Ewing and Tom Riley's Ant-Man Antiversary. <laughs> Welcome back to Geeksplained. I'm your host, Eric Azana, and today's episode is the latest edition of our Geeksplained Spotlight series, where every month I take a maxi-series, graphic novel, comic series, or mini-series, and tell you why it's so freaking great. And this month, to celebrate the release of Ant-Man and the Wasp Quantumania, we're taking a look at last year's four-issue mini-series Ant-Man Antiversary, or Antniversary. I can never get the title right. Uh, this is a four-issue miniseries by Al Ewing and Tom Riley celebrating not just one Ant-Man, but four. And it was just such a great breath of fresh air. We haven't had uh, what I consider a really great, simple Ant-Man story in a while. And this one celebrates not just one, but all Ant-Men in a very uh, multi-Doctor Who style story. So we're going to be diving into that today and talking about why it's so freaking amazing and why... Uh, Al Ewing should be writing more Ant-Man. We also have, of course, this week's Comics Countdown, where I'll chat you up about all the comics you should be picking up this week, so make sure you stay tuned after the jump for that. But for now, let's roll right on into the main event, the main course, the entree, if you will, as we put the Geeksplained spotlight on Al Ewing and Tom Riley's Ant-Man Antiversary. For over 60 years, the shrinking Avenger has delighted comic book readers with astonishing tales of heroism and shocking stories of tragedy. A perfect blend of superheroics and science fiction, every era of Ant-Man's storied career has had a lasting impression throughout Marvel's long history. But now, a new threat has emerged that could unravel that very history and put an end to the legacy of Hank Pym and every hero that followed in his footsteps. Has time finally run out for Ant-Man? In 2022, we were celebrating the 60-year anniversary of Ant-Man. Ant-Man has been a character who has been around for as long as the heroic age of Marvel has been around for. He was a founding Avenger, and Hank Pym's 
tenure as the character set the foundation for every other Ant-Man that would follow him, all the way up to his big screen debut in the MCU. And now, as we're looking at Ant-Man and the Moss Quantumania that's releasing this month as of this recording, it's time to kind of turn the clock back and look at the entire history of Ant-Man, not just Hank Pym, but every Ant-Man that has followed him. And as the celebrations of 60 years of the Ant-Man were getting underway, a book was announced. An Ant-Man four-issue miniseries helmed by Al Ewing and Tom Riley that would not only celebrate the past and present of the Ant-Man role, but also the future. Now, Ant-Man, as I said before, has been around for a really long time. He made his debut as Hank Pym in Tales to Astonish number 27 way back in January of 1962. And the saga of the Ant-Man has been fraught, to say the least. Hank Pym was a sterling example of your classic Silver Age hero, steeped in science fiction, very white meat baby face, but really compelling at the time because at that point science fiction and superheroics were kind of a novelty when he made his debut he alongside the unstoppable wasp or i guess the wonderful wasp as she was called at the time joined with other heroes to establish the avengers which was kind of the premier marvel super team as the years would go by though we would see the degradation of hank pym's character of his reputation and he would go through a couple different metamorphoses turning into giant man as he expanded his size manipulation from growing smaller to also growing larger that led the way for him to adopt the identity of goliath and later on as he became more unstable hank pym adopted the identity of yellow jacket now the yellow jacket era of hank pym is uh it's not great, we'll just say. Uh, the stories were plenty compelling, but they also made some really not great choices, including uh, having Hank Pym strike Wanda for the first time. And that has kind of led the, uh, the discourse, the scuttlebutt, when it comes to Hank Pym as a character. He is always kind of boiled down into that moment. And I think there is something to be said about whether or not you can come back from something like that or whether one moment like that should divine your entire existence. But he was also defined in this era for creating the villainous Ultron, a character who would go on to be one of the main antagonists for the Avengers for years and years and years to come. And again, this was a really not super great period for Hank Pym as a character. Regardless of that, though, the role of Ant-Man continued to change hands from Hank Pym to other characters throughout these last 60 years. It would eventually find its way into the hands of notable thief Scott Lang, who would go on to become the astonishing Ant-Man once again and build an even bigger legacy for that character, and arguably become more synonymous, especially when it comes to the mainstream with the title of Ant-Man, and of course, how can we forget the irredeemable Ant-Man, Eric O'Grady, who is just the worst at all times for everything. If you have read that irredeemable Ant-Man run, you know exactly what I'm talking about, and if you haven't, yeah, the, the, the less said about that, the better. However, when the 
solicitations and the uh, press was going on for this miniseries back in 2022, which feels so weird to say here in 2023, back in 2022, like it wasn't like two months ago. They notably had four different covers for the miniseries, each one highlighting a different Ant-Man. But Eric, I hear you saying, you just said that there were three Ant-Men. And yes, I did. And that's because the fourth cover featured an Ant-Man that we had never seen before. As it was stated, the series would not just spotlight the Ant-Man of past and present, but would also debut the Ant-Man of the future. And in this story, you will be able to piece together everything that I just talked about with the multiple Ant-Men, the legacy of Hank Pym, the just absolutely batshit uh, history of Ultron, especially in the later stages when Hank Pym and Ultron merged. And then it was revealed that Hank Pym died and that this Ultron was merely possibly just projecting this Hank Pym persona to try and move past or evolve itself past its purely uh, robotic existence. But where we ended up with the Ant-Man legacy was Scott Lang was the current Ant-Man. Hank Pym and his merged uh, Ultron self, also known as uh, Ultron Pym, uh, were sealed and contained by Iron Man. Uh, Eric O'Grady had died previously and was kind of brought back as an android version of himself who thinks he's Eric O'Grady. And... uh, That was kind of where we left the Ant-Man persona. Scott Lang has continued to build up his career alongside returning Janet Van Dyne as the Wasp. Uh, The daughter of Hank Pym, Nadia, has also become a Wasp. And Scott Lang has started his own kind of super family with his daughter, Stature, who would later on go on to uh, commit to the superhero identity of Stinger. But when we get to the Ant-Man miniseries, the 60-year anniversary, anniversary, whatever you want to call it, the synopsis or the premise goes like this. Flashback to the early days of Hank Pym's career as the astonishing Ant-Man. It's date night for Hank and his girlfriend Janet Van Dyne, but nobody told that to Ant-Man's enemies. Watch as Hank's antagonists band together to finally take down the scientific adventurer. But will anyone come to his rescue? And who is the mysterious stranger who stalks him? Join Al Ewing and Tom Riley as they explore the history of every hero, past, present, and future called Ant-Man. And essentially, when I first dove into this, it rang really true for me as Ant-Man meets Doctor Who, which makes sense when you consider the creative team. Now, getting into that creative team, uh, Al Ewing, the writer, uh, has been absolutely crushing it at everything he does when it comes to Marvel, really when it comes to anything that he's touched. I've never read a bad Al Ewing book. Uh, He's most notable right now for writing the X-Men Red book, but he's also done The Defenders, Immortal Hulk is one of his big claims to fame, and he had one of the greatest Guardians of the Galaxy runs ever, ever, period. More on that maybe in a future episode. Who knows? But also, 
I found out it makes so much sense to me now that he was a co-writer on the first year of the Doctor Who 11th Doctor comics, which makes sense. And another thing that I found out that was really cool that I didn't realize until I was doing the research for this, we share a birthday. We're both born on August 12th, and uh, that's pretty freaking cool in my book. Uh, But writing is only one part of a comic book. It is a visual medium after all. So let's talk about Tom Riley. Tom Riley is one of the fastest rising stars in comics right now and is one of my personal favorite artists. Uh, He has a style that I am a complete basic bitch for, which is the slightly cartoonish classic throwback to old school art a la Chris Somney, uh, Doc Shaner, that kind of art, which I absolutely fawn over every single time I see it. Uh, Most notably, I think he is known for his Thing series with uh, writer Walter Mosley, which kicks all kinds of ass. And if you would like me to cover it on the show sometime, let me know. But he also had a hand in one of my favorite Cyclops stories ever, which is the Snapshots X-Men issue with writer Jay Edidin. And I love that story. It is one of my favorite Cyclops stories I've ever read. And the art in that is so freaking good. Tom Riley is a name that you are going to want to keep an eye out for for years and years to come because he is a superstar. Uh, Also, I cannot say enough good things about the colors here. Jordi Belair is a absolute marvel. And pun completely intended, Jordi Belair has... I think my favorite colors in the industry. Uh, it'd be tough. I'd have to like really sit down and look at uh, at the you know Mount Rushmore of colorists, but Jordy is absolutely there, and none of this book is halfway decent as it is without the three of them working together in concert. Um, I love this creative team, and they were the perfect choice to tell this story. Now, as the uh, as the synopsis implies, this is kind of a multi-Doctor story, which I absolutely love. You know, I am a huge Doctor Who fan, and when it comes to them blending two of my favorite things, superheroes and Doctor Who, this hits all the right notes. Each issue has a distinct visual style drawing from the original run of that character like the first issue which is the hank pym issue feels ripped both in art and writing straight out of that silver age um it's just it's phenomenal i love stuff like this when it comes to like the uh the intro page that looks like it was a more or less a cover from that period where it's like the astonishing Ant-Man and the wonderful Wasp. It is said that you can judge a man by the enemies he makes. How then to judge the Ant-Man whose rogues gallery includes Egghead, the Scarlet Beetle, and the Cyclops. And even the miniature Marvels... Miniature Marvels. Lesser foes could pose a deadly threat if the dark day came when they united as a single fiendish force. Did we say if? Say rather when, true believer. For the time has come when the Ant-Man must stand alone against the Ant-Agonists. It's just, it's so cool. And this first issue might be my favorite out of the whole bunch. Because I love throwbacks to that era. 
Um, it's kitschy, it's cheesy, it's cornball in all the ways that I love. And it does a great job in that first issue of establishing our two leads, Hank Pym and Janet Van Dyne, who have a lasting effect on the entire book. Janet, unfortunately, is only really focused on in this first issue. However, they are currently doing a companion piece for the Wasp, since she is also celebrating her 60th anniversary. The first issue is out, and you should pick it up, and the second issue is going to be out very soon here. Uh, But Hank Pym gets his spotlight in this first issue as that squeaky clean man of science who's kind of aloof in a very Reed Richards way, and it also establishes future characters. While there's the the whole issue kicks off with uh, Hank and Janet at a movie theater uh, watching the latest flick of Namor versus the Fantastic Four, which is a real thing that happened. Namor had film crews come to him and they filmed his clash with the Fantastic Four and he was a director. It's weird. It's super weird, uh, but it's kind of amazing. But while they're on their date, uh, they're being, or Hank rather, is being showered with popcorn from a punk-ass kid two rows up. And that punk-ass kid grows up to be Eric O'Grady. And later on in the issue, after uh, Hank Pym is captured by the antagonists and the Wasp is looking for him, as well as these fiendish foes, uh, she catches a burglar who is in the middle of breaking in and stops him just shy of him uh, making this burglary, but also because it allowed her to find Hank, she lets him off with a steep warning. That young burglar was a young Scott Lang. So it does a great job in kind of retconning and threading through the history of all three of these Ant-Men at the same time as telling this overarching story that focuses on each character in their own right. The second issue, which is the Eric O'Grady issue, uh, and again, this is when the art and the colors really shine here, reminisces of that Phil Hester art from the Ant from the Irredeemable Ant-Man run. It's so good. It does a great job in getting you in each of these separate time periods because the first issue, Hank Pym, 60s aesthetic. Second issue, Eric O'Grady, very much uh, during that time, the late late 2000s, I believe, uh, was when that Irredeemable Ant-Man run was going. Third issue is the Scott Lang issue, which is ripped straight from the modern Marvel era. And then throughout it, we're introduced to this fourth Ant-Man. Now, this story is all about legacy. It's all about honoring the history of this character. And it's all about examining heroism and what it means to be the Ant-Man. And throughout each of these issues, you get to see what being Ant-Man means to each of these characters. To Hank Pym, it's science, science, science always innovating, always growing. Issue two with Eric O'Grady, it's learning to kind of forge your own path and be the Ant-Man that you choose to be for better or mostly for Eric O'Grady for worse. And in issue three, it's about Scott Lang learning to trust in himself and not treat himself as a, you know, little league, minor league hero because he's absolutely not. Scott Lang, as I said before, is arguably the Ant-Man to 
most everybody. And so when we talk about what it means to be the Ant-Man and the legacy of that character, that brings us to our fourth Ant-Man, Zane Asgar. I don't know if I said that last name uh, correctly, so if I didn't, please correct me. Let me know. I want to make sure I'm pronouncing people uh, and their names as well as I can. But Zane is a character from far, far in the future, thousands of years, in fact, and he has come to a uh, come to this story as again, kind of a blend of all three of these Ant Men. With Scott Lang, he is uh, able to think on the fly. He is an innovator. He is someone who gets down and dirty and in the trenches and is willing to forge uh, whatever path he can. Like Hank Pym, he is a man of science who relies on the technological advances of his time to forge his path as the Ant-Man. And just like Eric O'Grady, he is set on making his strides for him. He doesn't want to be strictly just an Ant-Man. He wants to be the Ant-Man of his time period. And with the end of his world and the rebirth of his world, he has established himself as the Ant-Man who is going to change the world and make it a better place. And to do that, he has to go back through the time stream to three distinct periods of Ant-Man to get their help to make his future and his time period, his present, as prosperous as it can be. However, this all brings us back to the main antagonist of this story and of course it could only be one character if you are tracking and celebrating the history of ant-man and that is of course ultron now this version of ultron which is all father ultron which is the most terrifying prospect you can think of ultron with the powers of odin was first introduced in Ewing's Avengers Forever run, which I love. It was basically like a three-issue, went across uh, three different series of Avengers and established this future version of Ultron that went into the uh, halls of Asgard, slaughtered all of the gods, and claimed the all-force for himself. Thankfully, he was dispatched by a time-displaced group of heroes from all manner, all different time periods of the Avengers timeline, and sent careening back into the timeline, never to be seen again, or so we thought. In his efforts to try and check out the time stream, he unfortunately, Zane did, uh, unleashed Allfather Ultron in his time, and so Zane has to call upon the other three Ant-Men to bring them to his time to battle against Ultron. And really across the series, you get to see why each one of these characters shine the way they do. Hank Pym, kicking things off, is again very much in that cookie-cutter, uh, white meat, blue, blue-eyed, bushy-tailed, uh, superhero of the silver age but also is an inventor he's a genius he is somebody who is not immune to thinking on his feet alongside the all of the planning that he does as a hero and in his first story where he goes up against the antagonists he has to rely on the wasp as well and it's kind of bittersweet when you see how well they work together in the story knowing what would eventually happen to their relationship and to Hank Pym just in general 
Uh, we also get in the second story during the period of Eric O'Grady a spotlight on why he is the worst. Um, Eric O'Grady is the worst at all times. Um, if you just Google Eric O'Grady Ant Man, you'll see why. But what I love about his issue, not just the fact that the art echoes his original run. And it really does a great job in making him kind of a lovable loser, uh, more so than his original series did, in fact. Um, it really does a great job in showing just how much uh, a time period can recontextualize everything, right? His issue takes place in the very early days of his run and also does a great job in spotlighting the Marvel Universe around that time because they were getting ready and gearing up for Secret Invasion, which was a story where, if you're not familiar, the Skrulls had infiltrated the superhero community. And at this point, Hank Pym had been replaced by a Skrull and was also more or less the science the scientist supreme and the lead scientist in shield so we get this great story of eric trying to figure out what his next steps are after having just stolen an experimental ant-man armor while this scroll hank pym has to track him down due to the fact that he made that experimental ant-man armor with scroll biology and so there's this great confrontation between the two of them uh, in the cemetery over Scott Lang's grave. And Eric O'Grady is just, again, he's the worst, but he's also really fun to read. And that's why the character, I think, has had kind of the staying power that he's had. We see that in the start of his story, he has to get more pin particles because there is only a very, very small amount basically enough for one use and now he has to figure out how to get more pin particles and so he believes if he digs up scott Lang's body that he will find more pin particles and so he we get this great thought bubbles and again the revival of thought bubbles thought bubbles should be in more comics we see him at scott's grave and it's and i just want to read this because it's amazing okay let's focus on the positives here technically this is the most luck i've had in a while if they'd buried Lang down in Florida, I'd never have gotten to him, but he's right on my doorstep. Nobody saw me break in here. Security guards are striking for better pay. Clearly, fate wants me in the cemetery. On the negative side, this is a low. Even for me. Am I really going to dig up a hero's grave in the hope that he was buried in costume? And that he's still got a hit of shrink gas in his ant helmet? He looks around, and he goes... I mean, yes, clearly I am. But taking a moment to feel bad counts for something, right? I just, I, I love it. I love it. He's objectively the worst, but he knows he's the worst. And that's something that I appreciate about characters like this. When they're the worst and they know that they're terrible people, there's something endearing about that for me. And when Hank shows up, or Skrull Hank, shows up to fight him, it is a really, really fun exchange. Because this is, again, this is a scroll Hank who is trying to keep his, uh, his cover from being blown. And to do that, he needs to stop uh, Eric from exposing him. Because he believes that the only reason that Eric stole the Ant-Man suit was because he realized that there were scroll components. And so he's like, He's going to blow my cover. He knows my secret. I have to put him down. And when it's revealed that Eric is just a 
absolute goon and has no idea about what the uh about what the suit can do or what it's made of this is made specifically uh clear when he's like I just need a fresh dose of pim particles and then and then the suit says acknowledge generating synthetic pim particles stand by and he's like the suit makes its own pim particles I could have done that at any time I just it's again it's amazing doofus characters will always have a place in my heart and so when uh, the two continue to beat the crap out of each other and obviously Skrull Hank is going to kill Eric just to make sure he covers his bases and Eric is by an act of God uh, saved by Zane who pulls him into his time to help battle against Allfather uh, Ultron. It's really, again, spotlighting the unique characteristics and what makes him so unique among uh, other Ant-Men. It's the same thing that you can look at with the Green Lanterns. Each one of them, especially the Earth Green Lanterns, have their own unique identity, right? Hal, Guy, John, Kyle, uh, even if you want to go further with Jessica, Simon, especially Joe, all of them have their own unique and distinct personality, background, and character traits. And this series does a great job in highlighting each of these for the Ant-Men. In the modern day, when we get to Scott's chapter, again, he's dealing with his own imposter syndrome. The fact that he feels like a, I guess, a minor Avenger rather than the all-star that he is and has the right to carry himself as. But we also get a quick little uh, look at Eric's future as well and the fact that he is dead. And now the Black Ant, who is his robotic double that... I think at this point knows that he's a robotic double, but is just kind of accepting it at this point. Um, the two of them get to clash as we get a look at Hank and his daughter Cassie, who is obviously, as I said before, the stinger. And it's really cool just to see how not just the art changes, but how the perspective changes. Each of these Ant-Men are unique in their viewpoint on the role and their place in that role right hank pym obviously doesn't see himself as this you know progenitor for the legacy of the ant-man he's just a guy who enjoys science when you come to eric he recognizes that he's the worst ant-man ever he says it right in his info page at the start of that second issue he knows that and he's kind of struggling with whether he's okay with that or not and Scott Lang, at this point, has an entire legacy established before him. Both his first run as Ant-Man before he quote-unquote died. Uh, if you want more information about that, go back last week in our crazy Kang episode where I went a little nuts trying to go through the entire history of that character. But during the time of his quote-unquote death... Eric made his whole legacy as the irredeemable Ant-Man and almost ruined the identity of that role. So Scott has been trying to pick up the pieces and establish his own legacy as that character. And in that, everyone sees how good he is. You know, Stinger, his daughter, tells him, look, you are a great Ant-Man. You have battled Ultron. You've saved the world. You need to carry yourself better. And I don't think that the Avengers necessarily see him as a lesser, but they don't do anything to make him feel any greater than he is which is unfortunate 
But when Hank is faced, or Scott rather, is faced with this Hank uh, Ultron hybrid, he even has his doubts. And when faced against the Black Ant, he has to have a unique perspective on dealing with this threat. Which brings us to Zane as a character. I really enjoy Zane, and I'm kind of glad that this is a one-off for him. Because there are so many stories that you can tell with this character, and I am in no hurry to get to him as a character, because I don't want to run through that as quickly as they have. I mean, Hank was the one and only Ant-Man for a very long time, and then we saw, at the turn of the century, two other Ant-Man take his, take his place, and now we're back to that status quo of Scott, we got time. We got plenty of time for Zane to come on the scene. But I do love that he is able to traverse the time stream. He's able to call upon these other Ant-Men to help him. And just like with the other three Ant-Men, his, uh, his art style is very unique to him. And when the four Ant-Men come together to battle against Ultron, it's just it's really cool to see them use their unique traits to defeat this all-powerful, omniscient, omnipotent character who is outsmarted by four guys who are uh, the size of ants. I just, I really love the idea of that, the concept of the three, of the four of them coming together to use their unique perspectives and their unique uh, roles as Ant-Man to defeat this all-powerful deity, almost. And when the characters come together, you get to see how much they shine as individuals and also as uh, as a team. And that's something that, again, hearkening back to what I was talking about earlier, that's the best part of multi-Doctor stories when it comes to Doctor Who. The 50th anniversary was an absolute delight, one of the most rewatchable Doctor Who episodes that I have ever seen. Because you get to see the strength of three Doctors from three distinct time periods, that being... David Tennant's 10th Doctor, uh, Matt Smith's 11th Doctor, and the late, great John Hurt's War Doctor. Coming together with three different perspectives, uh, not getting along initially, but learning to trust and respect each other. And that's one of the things that I love about the about the story is about showing not just why these characters are perfect in their eras and not just why they are great representations of the Ant-Man character, even Eric O'Grady, but also why the four of them work together as a team, as a legacy team. A lot of times you'll see characters who are kind of the antithesis of each other when they take up the mantle of a previous uh, holder. And it always ends up with the two, with them clashing or them uh, battling for the right to be whoever. In this, you kind of see that all four of them respect each other in different ways and different roles. Even though there is a very clear distaste for Erica Grady that Scott Lang has and will continue to have, which is fine. But what I love the most about this ending of the story, and really it is a thesis statement on the story itself, is after they're able to dispatch uh, Ultron using a very inventive way that I loved was a through line throughout all four issues. Uh, the four of them kind of come together and 
you know, Eric is automatically just like, yes, it is through my timely intervention and my uh, mastery of being a distraction that we are able to defeat this omnipotent being. Um, everyone, you know, is able to kind of come together, take a breather. And I love Eric O'Grady, who's just like, listen, if I seem to commit any crimes in your future, it's not what it looks like. And Hank Pym recognizes him as the as the kid who was throwing popcorn at him. And he's like, great, Scott, the cinema pest. I guess I'd better, I had better influence on you than I thought. And Scott over the side is just like, you really didn't. And I just, I love all of them kind of coming together and seeing each other for not just who they will be, but who they are as characters and as Ant-Men. And as Zane kind of warns them about, you know, oh, you shouldn't learn too much about your futures. Um, Scott makes a great point in that he says, look, we'll be careful, but there's a lot of tragedy in the life of an Ant-Man. So all of us getting together like this is kind of a unique moment. And it really is when you look at it. All three of these Ant-Men, or really if you look at it, all four of these Ant-Men never had a lot of crossover. Sure, uh, Scott Lang runs across Black Ant all the time, but that's not this Eric O'Grady. Eric O'Grady was the Ant-Man in his time. Scott Lang is the Ant-Man in his time. Hank Pym was the Ant-Man in his time. And Zane will be the Ant-Man of his time. There isn't a lot of crossover, so getting them together, just like in Doctor Who, is kind of an amazing moment. Like, having David Tennant and Matt Smith working off each other is incredible and it's something that you don't see all the time so it is special and it matters and it means something and as the story wraps up the ant-man of the future puts the perfect bow on this story and really on the story of ant-man as a whole in that he says time of course will take care of itself as it always does you know, the Ant-Man has been around for 60 years, and I'm sure he's going to be around for 60 years, 60 more years. We'll be celebrating the 100th anniversary, the 120th anniversary of Ant-Man as time goes on with his uh, appearances in comics, in film, in video games, in TV. The Ant-Man is going to last forever, seemingly, as Zane Asgar, the Ant-Man of the far future, will attest to. And ultimately, with the role of the character, with the legacy of the character, through Hank Pym, to Eric O'Grady, to Scott Lang today, and far off in the future in Zane and beyond, I think it's pretty clear that Ant-Man has all the time in the world. Welcome back to this week's Comics Countdown! This is the segment of our show where I'll chat you up about all the comics you should be picking up this week, whether it's at your local comic book shop, a comicsology, or however you get your comics. These are the ones I think you should definitely take a look at. But before we get into this week's comics, we got to take a look back at last week's comics with the Geek Explained Pick of the Week of last week. And there were quite a few contenders last week it was a short week i believe we only had five books on the list but all five of them were so freaking good that it was splitting hairs to figure out which one was my favorite but ultimately i chose captain america sentinel of liberty number nine written by the hive mind with art by carmen carnero uh this book rules it just does i'm loving what they're doing right now in both cat books and i just 
I, I'm so excited as a Cap fan that they're getting not just uh, critical acclaim, but also audiences seem to really, really be digging what both the Steve and Sam books are doing right now. So it's a good time to be a Captain America fan. But that's last week's books. This week, we've got one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight books still in the single digits, though we're going to be ramping up real soon, I'm sure. So let's go ahead and dive into this, kicking things off with Storm and the Brotherhood of Mutants number one this is written by al ewing with art by paco medina and this is kind of taking the place of x-men red during the sins of sinister event uh sins of sinister number one was i just it was a lot it was a lot and so we're setting up exactly what uh storm and her brotherhood is going to be uh responding to that during this event so i'm excited to check this out let's go ahead and dive into the synopsis the new brotherhood Mars has been destroyed, and now Storm wants revenge. To get it, the new Brotherhood of Araco will battle their way through hell to seek the greatest secret of the Sinister Age. But are they fighting to save the world or end it? And who is the new mutant hero called Ironfire? I'm going to assume Ironfire is a Chimera, because we're going to be getting a lot of those. Uh, I dig this cover, too. I like this look for Storm, this very Magneto-esque uh, inspired look. But hopefully, and I'm sure we all know that Sins of Sinister, especially with how uh, reality-bending it is, it's going to be... It, it's 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 modern-day Age of Apocalypse, essentially. But I'm still on board to see where they go with it. Next up, we have Lazarus Planet, Next Evolution number one. This is written by Chuck Brown, Brandon T. Snyder, Ram V, and Delilah S. Dawson, with art by Aletha Martinez, Lalit Kumar Sharma, Laura Braga, and Rose Stein. Love seeing friend of the podcast Rose Stein on there. Uh, this is another tie-in to the Lazarus Planet event, and so far the tie-ins have been really, really strong, so I'm really excited to pick this up. Let's go ahead and dive into the synopsis. See no evil. Heroes will be forged. Good and bad, yin and yang. All sides of humanity will be transformed by the Lazarus event. And in the DC Universe, one thing's for sure, heroes will always rise. In this special, we'll explore some of the amazing new powers gifted to the freedom fighters of the future. And we'll see what perils these villain-vanquishing virtuosos will face. What secret does Flatline seek from the heart of Talia al Ghul's HQ? Can Red Canary bring order to an out-of-control city? What secret does the heroic Deadeye hold that will haunt him forever and enter into a brand new legend with a fantastic debut of Vigil? One thing that's really exciting about Lazarus Planet is all the new characters that they're introducing in this, uh, many of which are Asian, which I am excited about. I love it. Uh, so I'm I'm loving the new debuts. I'm loving the spotlights on newer characters. And it looks like this is going to be a heavy new character spotlight tie-in. So keep your eyes out for this one. Next up, we have The Amazing Spider-Man, number 19. This is written, of course, by a brand new creator. Uh, Creative team stepping in to do some guest creative work, uh, written by Joe Kelly with art by Terry Dodson. Uh, that's really exciting. Doing a quick, uh, quick creative team change. I'm sure while uh, Zeb Wells gets ready for whatever he's doing next in Spider-Man, as well as being the new writer of the Avengers, uh, Zeb Wells has got a lot going on. Got a lot going on. So uh, let's go ahead and dive into the synopsis. Dark Web is over, but the effects will shake Spider-Man for a long time. 
To recover, Peter Parker and Felicia Hardy, a.k.a. the Black Cat, escape from the city to an exclusive spa in the Catskills. Surely trouble won't follow our webhead and ruin his romantic getaway. Join Superstar Creative guest team uh, Joe Kelly and Terry Dodson for this special two-parter, where Spidey and Black Cat take their next step and no one tries to kill them yet. That's really fun. That's really exciting. Um, I like this. Uh, I like this cover as well. Black Cat saying worst date ever as they're fighting a horde of ninjas. Uh, yeah, I'm into this. I like this two parter. Um, and I'm excited to pick up these next two issues. Next up, we have Batman number 132. This is written by Chip Zdarsky with art by Mike Hawthorne and Miguel Mendoncha. Um, I, t- I mean, Batman's so freaking good. I keep, I keep recommending this Batman run to people uh, because it's really, really strong. And maybe it's because we're covering Batman right now in the Geeksplain book club, but I am on a bat high. So I'm very excited to pick this up. Let's go ahead and dive into the synopsis. The Batman of Gotham, part two, slash the Toy Box, part two. The mean streets of Gotham City have gotten meaner as the likes of Harvey Dent and Killer Croc roam free, brutalizing the population. Where is Batman, and why hasn't he responded to the cries of a city in peril? Can Bruce Wayne find the answers before the mysterious Red Mask captures him? And in the backup story, Tim Drake's hunt for Batman continues. Will Metropolis' newest Superman, John Kent, be able to help the boy wonder with his multiversal mystery? Or will they both run afoul of an overpowered toy man? Yeah, I'm 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 really digging this. I love that Robin is getting a spotlight here, specifically Tim Drake, my boy. Uh and I love that we are dealing with a more I don't want to say like a more intimate, a more personal multiverse story, but that's kind of what it feels like, right? It it doesn't have the like multiverse ending, you know, stakes. It's very personal, it's very minimized, very just Batman is in another world. And no one knows. And so I'm I'm really digging this. I'm really excited to see where they go with this. Next up, we have Captain America, Symbol of Truth, number 10. This is written by Tochio Nyabuchi with art by R.B. Silva. And again, I have to reiterate, the cat books are so freaking good right now. Uh, they have been for a while, but they are firing on all cylinders with both the Steve and Sam books. And the Sam book is really, really cool. Just dealing with the more international stakes, dealing with... Um, foreign policy, foreign politics, and running afoul of the White Wolf. I'm so excited that they brought the White Wolf back for this. He he works as a really great foil to Sam. And then you've got Ian dropped in the middle of it. It's just all amazing stuff. So let's go ahead and dive into the synopsis. Pax Mohanda, Part 5. Cap versus Falcon. When Falcon arrives in Mohanda, delirious and rampaging from the effects of White Wolf's chemical attack, it's up to Captain America to save his friend, or to stop Falcon from hurting anyone else. In this heartbreaking showdown between partners, Sam Wilson must make a choice about who he wants to be, and what he is willing to sacrifice for the mantle of Captain America. Boy, if they kill Falcon, I swear to God, I swear to God, uh, we're gonna have to see, but, um... I am I am clenched, we'll say. Next up, we have The Flash, number 792. This is written by Jeremy Adams with art by Roger Cruz, and this is continuing on the One Minute War. I'm, j- I'm loving One Minute War. The One Minute War special last week was amazing, and we got to see some from my girl, Avery Ho! I'm really excited. I, I love seeing the Flash family all together working together, so uh, let's go ahead and dive into the synopsis. 
One Minute War, Part 3. The Flash family is in dire straits as the Fraction begin their takeover. Looking for a way to push them back, Impulse has an idea. The kind of idea that usually gets people in trouble. It's up to Kid Flash to keep him company on a daring mission that could help turn the tide against this extraterrestrial threat. So yeah, I'm really excited. I love this team up between Ace and Bart. Uh, this is a lot of fun. This is a lot of fun. I love seeing them clash. I'm excited to see what kind of hijinks they get into. This is going to be one to look out for, for sure. Next up, we have Daredevil number eight, written also by Chip Zdarsky with art by Marco Cicchetto. And we are on a collision course. We have the impending war between the hand and the fist. And uh, I feel like we're here. We've, got, we've gotten through all of the preamble. We've set the stage. And now it's just time for the fight. So let's go ahead and dive into this lengthy synopsis. The Red Fist Saga Part 8. At Last War. So yeah, I think they went a little wordy there, but I'm really excited. <laughs> I'm I'm just I'm I'm stoked. I'm really really stoked. This is going to be incredible. I can't wait to pick this up. But the big book of the week, the book I think you should absolutely be picking up is Gotham City Year 1 number 5. This is written by Tom King with art by Phil Hester, and I have been singing the praises of Gotham City Year 1 since it was announced, and I'm very excited that it has been just absolutely crushing it ever since. Uh, I love this book. I think it's wonderful. Tom King has an absolute gift when it comes to crime thriller, and I'm really, really stoked to pick up this next chapter. So let's go ahead and dive into the synopsis. Chapter 5. Beaten, bruised, and betrayed. Slam Bradley should have never gotten involved with the Waynes. With a tragic turn of events and a city on the edge of burning, can this hard-boiled private detective close an impossible case? Yeah, so this is really fun. Again, this is kind of like the fall of Rapture in the Bioshock world. Um, it's just really cool seeing the choices that are made to turn Gotham City from this shining beacon into the Gotham that we know today. So I can't wait to pick this up, and I can't wait to pick up all of these books. That wraps up this week's Comics Countdown. But to recap, we've got Storm and the Brotherhood of Mutants, number one, Lazarus Planet, Next Evolution, number one, The Amazing Spider-Man, number 19, Batman, number 132, Captain America, Symbol of Truth, number 10, The Flash, number 792, Daredevil, number 8, and Gotham City, year one, number 5. Plenty of books to to pick up there is something literally for everyone so there is no excuse not to make getting your comics your top priority this week and that is going to bring us to the wrap-up. If this is your first time joining us on the Geeksplain podcast and you like what I do here, feel free to subscribe to us on the podcasting platform of your choice and give us a rating and review. We drop new episodes every single Wednesday, and honestly, ratings, reviews, and subscriptions really do help me and the podcast out in this weird podcasting algorithm space, raises up our stock, and gets us out and into the orbit of listeners just like you. And if you give us a five-star rating and review on Apple Podcasts, iTunes, whatever you want to call it, I will read your review here live on the podcast you can write literally whatever you want i will be forced to read every single word as long as you give me those five stars the sky's the limit 
And you'll be able to join the likes of our Red 13, including Seafire ND, Joshua Pastel Pixels, Matt Draper, Burrito Man 88, Doug from For Every Kind of Geek, Don Swanson, That Guy Brian, Mouth Dork, Dallas Meeks, Amazing Spider Fan, A-Lock and AZ, Sass and Jedi Jesse 20. And now we have a review from Ken4656. Ken, thank you so much. You know what you did. I appreciate you. You're the man. Who writes in Great Geekery? 100% worth the listen. It's refreshing to hear the perfect storm of passion for superheroes, comics, and more from someone who actually knows what they're talking about. Highly recommend. Ken, thank you very much. I really do appreciate that. Um, but now I have a quandary. I've been doing code names for every single, uh, what's it called? Every single grouping of reviewers. You know, we had our Hateful Eight, our Dirty Dozen, our Red 13. I don't know any famous 14s. So I'm going to think about it. I'll come back next week with something, I'm sure. But yeah, if you would like to join alongside Ken and our uh, other 14 reviewers, uh, feel free to give us a review. Five stars and I'll read it here. Would really appreciate hearing from you. If you want to be part of the Geeksplained mailbag, send your emails to geeksplained at gmail.com. Put mailbag in the subject header and I will read it here on the Wednesday show. If you would like to follow us, keep up to date with the podcast, participate in polls that decide future episodes, or maybe you just want to shoot the shit with me on the latest geeky news and how much you are excited about Ant-Man and the Wasp, Quantumania, uh, feel free to follow us on Instagram and Twitter at Pod. That's at P-O-D. And finally, every single Friday is the Geeksplain Book Club, where I, alongside my amazing friends, uh, Malcolm Russell Nelson and Jacob Brown, are currently going through every single issue of every single volume of Grant Morrison's Batman. Last week, we did our introductory prologue, where we covered Grant Morrison and Dave McKean's Arkham Asylum, A Serious House and Serious Earth. This week, we are kicking things off properly with part one of Batman and Son, where Batman meets his murdering uh, little boy son, Damian Wayne, and they figure out what to do with it. It's going to be issues 655 through 658 of the Batman run. Join us this Friday where we'll talk about it, whether we love the introduction of Damian or uh, otherwise. So join us on Friday for the Geek Explained Book Club. Gotham Fridays are a real thing, so be there or be square, not a circle. But that is going to do it for this week's episode. I thank you very much for listening. I'm sure you can tell my voice is going out. I caught something. I don't really know what it is, but um, it is uh, wreaking havoc on my vocal cords. So I'm going to get out of here. Thank you so much for listening. Next week is Valentine's Day. Uh, well, maybe not exactly Valentine's Day. Next week, as of this recording, is going to be February 15th. But it's still going to be our Valentine's Day special. So stay tuned for that. Next week, same geek time, same geek channel. But for now, for the Geek Explained podcast, I've been Eric Azana. Thank you so much for listening. Everybody stay safe, and we will see you next time.